This is Terrio Media. Broadcasting from Terrio Studios in Glendale, California, it's time for Epic Real Estate Investing with Matt Terrio. Hey, we are here live at the Epic Intensive Redondo Beach. We have a live audience. Let's show everybody that we're live. Recording the Epic Real Estate Investing Podcast Live. This is the place where I show people how to escape the rat race. To do that, all you have to do is do one thing. You got to do one thing one time. That is to change your mindset. Change that focus from making piles of money to making streams of money. You do that one thing one time and you are financially free. Good to go? Y'all in? Super. We've been here uh, all day long talking about escaping the rat race, and we've had a lot of great questions that came in. And what we decided to do was just kind of reserve the questions for a whole Q&A session and affix a panel of experts, of um, Echo Pro Academy members and some of my mastermind members, and collectively answer these questions and just get kind of a, a wide variety of wisdom and share it with you out there. Okay. So we're going to start by just, let's go about introducing everybody. Where's the, the son who's got the microphone? Mike, let's start with Todd, since you're on his end. Todd, introduce yourself, tell us where you're from, what you do. My name is Todd Toback, and I'm Todd Toback. I am, uh, live in San Diego, California. I have a real estate acquisition company. We do wholesaling and wholesaling, and uh, love this business. Fantastic. Love you, too. Awesome. Uh, my name is Mackenzie Kelly. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. We do uh, wholesaling and fix and flips in the Indianapolis market right now. And I've been doing it for about a year and a half. Super. And this is Josh Swanson. We're good. Boots on the ground. Uh, wholesaling for Matt over in the Orlando market. Um, getting good deals on buy and holds and fix and flips. What's up, guys? My name is Parker Stiles out of Atlanta, Georgia, and my wife and I do buy and holds, fix and flips, and wholesales. Hey, guys. Corey Kendig, 25, from Erie, Pennsylvania. Uh, we focus mostly on buy and holds, uh, holding a portfolio of 50 units, and wholesaling. Hashtag team manager. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Coco Collegian. I'm also 25, and um, <laughs> I'm from Los Angeles, and uh, we do high-end uh, fix and flip, and we do ground construction, and been in the business for 10 years. Fantastic. Yeah, Love it. Thank you very much, panel. So we're going to start with our questions from the audience. First one comes from Russell, 38, out of Minneapolis. He asks, how do you enroll... Oh, this is a good one. Mackenzie? Pay attention. Coco, pay attention. How do you enroll your spouse in the time commitment required to efficiently run the business, especially in the evening? Ooh. Pass the microphone down to who wants to take that one on. Coco, Coco bravely passes it. Very good. Mackenzie, I think you're probably the best one to answer this question. the best one. Yeah. Um, number one, it, it starts with marrying the right spouse. Okay? Um, so if you haven't, I'm sorry, there's always round two. But seriously, um, it is excellent communication. I brought my husband to the Epic Pro last year so he could see exactly what I do and be excited about it. Um, he's a pretty patient guy anyway, and he sees the long game, and he's actually seen the fruits of our labor now. So uh, he is going to have an opportunity, hopefully, in the next year or so, maybe even sooner, to be able to retire. So, you know, sacrifice pays off. Fantastic. Thank you. Anybody have anything to add to that? 
That's pretty good, right? I thought it was great, yeah. I'm enrolled, too. I'm not even married to her. Okay, this comes from Casey, 25 years old, out of Ackworth. What are some good info sources, podcast books, or advice on preparing a fix and flip business for a market dip? Ooh, Coco, maybe this is your question. Sources. Our fix and flipper here in Los Angeles. Sources, online sources and whatnot? Let's see. Podcasts, books. What are some good sources or advice on preparing a fix and flip business for a market dip? You know, obviously I'll look at bigger pockets, right? To get out there and start to read, start to listen to what other guys are doing out there and how they're insulating, them, insulating themselves from the market. Because we feel like in LA there's specifically a market correction coming. It's not what it's not the, if it's going to happen, it's just a matter of when. And for that we're taking Precautions, you know, to insulate ourselves and not take it on longer projects, so we don't know what's going to happen nine months from now. You know, so when we do our bigger projects, that's usually how long it takes. So do the, you know, the the, the quick and easier ones versus the long-term projects. So. Got it. So shorter-term projects is how you're preparing for the dip. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, any specific book or resource that taught you kind of maybe some secrets about fix and flipping? Um, there's a real estate investing one-on-one book I remember, and that's essentially what buy and hold was all about uh, back in then. So um, switching gears from doing flips to trying to get buy and hold and right. know, obviously get some cash flow. So. Sweet. Awesome. Thank you. This comes from are you talking? Oh, Parker. Parker out of uh, 25 out of Ackworth as well. Maybe you guys know each other. Um, any education sources for training on acquisitions manager that is on the ground in your virtual market? Ah, I think this is going for Todd. Training acquisition people. Well, I think the key word in training acquisition people, which sounds kind of facetious, but I found it to be true, is training. Right? I think we, a lot of people want to hire an acquisition manager and they think it's going to happen magically by just putting an ad on Craigslist and thinking this person's going to run your business. But if you've done, deal yourself, done deals yourself, um, it's going to take some time and energy and commitment and sacrifice to really get that person where they need to be. And so when you bring somebody on, you've got a responsibility to invest in them and to lead them and to pour into them and want them to make as much money as possible. And if they feel that, then they're going to perform and they're going to want to do great. And so if they're in another market, uh, it's going to take... Um, basically a steady dose of discipline. So we've hired people virtually in other markets. Um, you can do that over Skype or teleconference. And one of the things great about it, if you do that, is if you go like Free Conference Pro, you can train them, say, every day for two weeks, and we can record it, put in MP3s, and then if you have to hire somebody else, just give them the MP3s, um, and you're good, and you've got 80% of the training there. That being said, um, you may not need to hire a person in that market. We lock up all of our deals on the phone, so... You know, if you want to have them on the ground or in person, it's going to take time either way, but I wouldn't limit yourself to someone on the ground. Got it. Great. So you're a rock star sales guy. You're a great sales manager. You've got a great team that you've trained in sales. Is there anyone's philosophy, sales mentor, guru, book, resource that you really subscribe to that you've adapted and embraced, embraced and that's kind of the foundation of your training or your system? Sure. So the first thing that any sales rep or acquisition manager or entrepreneur has to have uh, straight is... Um, your head, right? And you, you talked about that. And mm -hmm. so if the person on the phone doesn't believe who they are, right, that they're a rock star, they deserve this money, and that they're offering value, mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're never going to go anywhere. And once they get that, everything else will follow. It's, it, it's going to be much easier. So there's a cyclo-cybernetics. Dan Kennedy came out with, with, with one. Mm -hmm. That was a, a new version. And so I'd say start uh, with that. But in terms of sales philosophy, uh, I'm a big Sandler guy. Uh, I, 
think is really, really important yeah. is learning some of those uh, negative mismatching. And so uh, there's a book that's called the, um, is it uh, The Art of the Deal? Mm -hmm. Yeah, The Art of the Deal by, by Sandler, that's by one of the licensees, and, and we love that. Yeah. So that's, that's my main source. Right. Rest in peace, Mr. Sandler. He's one of the great ones, for sure. Awesome, thanks. So this comes from Ken, 39, out of Warrington, Pennsylvania. This is to Mackenzie specifically. How did you pivot from starting in wholesaling to managing your VAs and systems to one day per week? And what would you do differently if you were to do it all over again? I mean, would you call it a pivot? I don't think. I think it was like a, a graceful fall into it. Um, I originally um, wanted to do real estate and I was running another full-time business and so I had a conversation with my business partners we were um, about 10 years into our business and I said you know this is kind of what I want to do business is running well I've replaced myself a little bit with this other business so let me see what I can do um, to do real estate so it was that was a tough transition because I was giving up a lot of control at the reins of my other business, but realizing that I love real estate and I want to divest some of my income into real estate anyway. Um, it, it is a little bit of a juggle, but I think it's just getting started. Um, and so I want, I, I started everything, I started answering the phones. I needed to learn how the whole entire real estate business works so then I could teach my VA. So unless you understand how it works, you're not going to be able to teach your VA uh, what to do. So as soon as I understood how it works, much like how I worked in my other business, once I got it, then I could teach somebody else. So a lot like what Todd was saying, creating systems for teaching other people um, is a good way to bring your VA on board. Awesome. So at this point, if you were to do it again, what is one thing that you would have done differently? differently. I think I was pretty happy with how it went. I don't think starting, I mean, I know starting any business is really challenging. Um, I know everybody says to start sooner, but I, I think I felt like I tried to jump in as quickly as possible and get the deals going as, um, as quickly as possible. Uh, I think I brought my VA on pretty quickly. I brought them on part-time and then I was able to have them on full-time. So I'm not sure that um, I regret anything that I do. And, and it's possible that I just realized that I'm going to make mistakes along the way, so I didn't regret that. I just continued to roll forward with it. Super. Great answer. This comes from Josiah 30 out of Buda, Texas. Did I say that right? Buda? Um, can I do a subject to transaction at a title company if there is a tax lien? Yes. Yeah. If you pay off the tax lien, or else the, the government's going to come and take the property away, right? That's pretty simple. Anything to add to that? Yeah, you can do that. You just have to pay off the tax thing first. Awesome. Tim, 47 out of San Diego. If looking to build a team for out-of-state wholesaling, who would you start with first? An agent, local, who would you start with? Yeah. Go ahead, Parker. I would start with a property manager. Um, for my virtual business, I think it's important to get a good estimate on repairs. It doesn't have to be exact, but as far as finding a contractor goes, uh, <clears throat> property managers are a great place to start. Property managers have tons of connections in the area. They know the area well. Um, and if you can develop a good relationship with somebody at a property management company, uh, you know that's a go-to person to get a lot of questions answered. Yeah. Um, as far as number two, 
Really, I mean, it just depends on, you know, Todd, you know, gets a lot of stuff done over the phone. I like to have boots on the ground. If you're going to be the person that wants somebody locally there that, you know, knows the neighborhoods and can, uh, you know, yell out landmarks, then that, that would be the second person for me as a boots on the ground guy. I think a property manager is a great, a great place to start this because their clients, their whole database, their whole customer base are real estate investors. So they have access to everything a real estate investor needs. I think it's they also have a lot of buyers too, so that helps. Absolutely. They got sellers as well. Yep. We've got disgruntled clients, I'm sure. Um, and all of mine do. Let's see. Uh, Sherilyn, 39, out of Sacramento. When generating LOIs, letters of intent, using the frustrated landlord strategy, what numbers should be used? Is there a general template? I guess this would be for me, right? Um, when generating LOIs using the frustrated landlord, what numbers should be used? Well, when we do that for the frustrated landlord, we base everything off the rent because we're always measuring the return on investment, what the cash flow, the cash on cash return is going to be. So we kind of start from there and move our way back. So if they're asking for a $1,300 a month rent in that vacant property, then we're trying to like see, okay, so they're going to make, we'll work our way backwards from there. They're going to make 60% of that, of that gross. And then they're not going to have to deal with the, the management. They're not going to have to deal with, uh, with the tenants. So we could probably deduct another 10, 20% from that. And then that's probably the cat, the sweet spot of where you can say, hey, how would you like to go ahead and keep retain, uh, receiving your cash flow without having to deal with all the tenant issues? So that's kind of where we go. We work, we find that cash flow number that we think they might be satisfied with and work our way backwards from that into our actual offer. Okay. Good question, thank you. Uh, Keith, 52 out of Edmond, Oklahoma. For a starter, what marketing method would you do first? I'm gonna pass this one to Todd, because you've been a big marketer, you've got a lot of investors in there, time and money. What would you do first for a starter? So where are you? So what's your marketing budget? Okay, so a month? Okay, so for, for me, if you've got that much, I'd spend- How much do they have? Three or five thousand a month. Three or five thousand, okay. So, you know, either you have more money or you have more time. In your case, I think you've got a decent budget. I'd go right to postcards. I'd send out postcards. I'd be consistent. I'd plan it out for the next three or four months. And if you do that and you're returning phone calls and you're consistent, in my experience, it will be nearly impossible for you not to do deals if you consistently follow up on those leads and take the long game as they come in. But postcards, for me, it's the fastest way to get the phone to ring and make it happen. Go for it, thank you. Uh, Ehad, 43, out of Novi, Michigan. Um, with the current shifting market, which strategy is best? Wholesaling, fix and flip, or buy and hold? Anybody wanna take a stab at that? This is Ehab. Ehab. Um, buy and hold, man, I mean, you can't go wrong. If, um, if you're buying it right for the cash flow, it doesn't matter what the market's doing at that point, that cash flow is always gonna come in. Um, in my business, every deal that comes across the table, we enter it and evaluate it with the expectation to be able to hold that place. If we can, it doesn't fit, and we wholesale it, we make the quick money. But if you're buying it for the cash flow, you're not gonna go wrong. So far, love it. Good answer. Yvonne, 27, from Orlando. What is today's best up-to-date database that we can use to generate leads? No outdated info. So I guess a list source, of what, what are you using for your, your data? Anybody? Parker? Uh, 
again, that depends on your budget. Um, <clears throat> if you've got a lot of money to spend, there's some good guys that are generating lists out there. There's inheritance lists. Uh, there's vacant lists. Um, I, me personally, I use a guy named Chris, uh, Chris Richter Aldantic. Um, you know, if you're starting out and you have a lower budget, then uh, you know there's list source. Uh, when I was first starting out, I would go to the probate court and I would fill out. <laughs> I would just go and, and every single thing. You go down the computer, you sit down, and you, I just bring an Excel spreadsheet on my own laptop, and I would hand copy down every single lead, uh, send it to probate leads, and then I did the same thing with eviction records. Uh, go down and basically just trying to send mail out to disgruntled landlords, just like Matt was talking about before. Um, and then you know, eventually, once you get realize that that's not the best use of your time, hire somebody off Craigslist, have somebody go down to the courthouse, and then I would have somebody do that in uh, you know, in the tri-county area that I was doing. I had one person in each county courthouse doing that and generating uh, Excel spreadsheets. The problem with that, they don't they kind of have an expiration date with the probate and the eviction leads. Um, so it, it just depends on where your budget at, but there's really no limit to where you can get leads from. Fantastic, thanks. Um, Josh, when I met, you guys started on, on a very small budget, very small marketing effort, but you're doing consistent deals. Where were you getting your data? Who are you sending your marketing materials to? Well, I started with 100 letters, um, spent $100, and within text delinquents. Um, Was that a week? Or a month? No, that was still I had hundred dollars in my name. You know, and I, okay. I sacrificed, you know, I ate top ramen for two weeks or whatever to get that extra hundred in and just send it out. And luckily enough that was a deal. I did the uh, the people with the highest uh, valued property, highest success value property, and who were tax delinquent because I thought that would get some good flips mm -hmm. and it did. So for that I did one that turned into a twenty thousand dollar deal. I reinvested a little bit of that. No more top ramen. No more top ramen, yeah. yeah. And then I did another one with the same list, and then I thought that was a really good one, tax delinquent. If you have a little money, you want to do something like probate or tax delinquent, where it's a very concentrated source, and every person you're going to contact definitely has a house, and they should be at least somewhat motivated. So, great answer. Thanks, Josh. Um, Sebastian, 34, out of Sparta, New Jersey. As you do marketing, when do you start directing budget towards other marketing strategies, PPC, et cetera, for testing? So, Todd, if they were going to start with their direct mail, they're going to start with the postcards. When would you suggest that they introduce a second strategy? So I had this conversation with somebody today, but when you have a steady flow of deals coming from direct mail, only then explore the next strategy. So if you find yourself really inconsistent, you know, mailing just when you feel like it, or your deal flow is not consistent enough, I wouldn't even consider a second marketing strategy. I pick one list, I make sure I'm mailing it at least every six weeks, and once I had that dialed in, I saw a solid ROI. If you can't add another direct marketing channel, and I, I look at that first, uh, once you feel like you've saturated, which I think is pretty hard to do, and then I'd add maybe one more. But you know, right now in our business, we only really have two marketing channels. I mean, sometimes we get referrals, but you know, I'm only on two, and I've been in this business. For and those two are direct mail and direct mail and internet. Yeah. You know, we do do some deals through real estate agents um, through working the telephone, but you know, 90% of our deals right now are coming from direct mail and internet. Fantastic, great uh, This is from Juan, 48 White. Uh, this is for Todd. When a lead converts to a seller, does this usually occur gradually through digging deep and knowing their needs, 
or pain? Or is it just more contact of the fifth or sixth call? So, uh, all three of us, right? So when someone has uh, a pain, and we want to dig deep on that, so we break it in the past, present, and future pain. We like to have them define all three of those, right? So what have you gone through if we, uh, in the past? What are you going through now? And if you don't do business, what does your life look like if you're going down the same path? So we like them to define that. Um, you know, the, the second part of that is we want to hear the situation, but they have to obviously be able to verbalize that. And then because we heard that pain, that's why we follow up with them the fifth, the sixth, or the seventh time, and it's because of that follow-up and that trust built and the rapport that they're going to sell to us for you know 50k lower than anybody else. So the, the trifecta, you just said it, it's all three of those, and that's how you lock up a monster, monster deal by building that trust and rapport with someone with a real problem and real pain. Fantastic. Perfect. Okay, so yes is the answer. Yes. Okay, yes. I got it. Um, is it Enrique? I said that correctly? 34 in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, what were your first steps when you started your investing career? First steps. Coco, what were your very first steps when you started your investing career? First steps, I would say, was uh, just making relationships. Uh, we knew people from uh, uh, from different facets of the real estate uh, business, uh, lending. That's where we originally started with the lending industry. And from there, we essentially talked to agents, talked to title companies, talked to escrow, and developed more and more relationships. And the more we spoke to people, the more deal conversations we had, and then, oh, you know, I've got this situation, and, and so on and so forth. And it essentially panned out to some deals. Mm-hmm. And through the years, especially now in this market, we've been able to flourish because those deals continue to come because we've proven ourselves over and over again. And um, so relationships like that. So but that's the reason we started. Super. Corey, well, uh, you know, since, since we've met, your business has like, you know, exploded. But you did have a little bit of a business going on before we met. What were your first steps in your investing career? Yeah, my first steps in my investing career were uh, getting around, I accidentally got around people that were already doing it. And just like Coco said, developing those relationships and tying that integrity into it. Once they know that you're the person that can get it done, um, I mean, that's, that's everything. I tell people all the time, they're like, oh, what's your secret sauce? There's no secret sauce. I tell every single person, from the lady at the grocery store to the woman that I just bought her house, I tell her. I'm like, I buy houses for cash. If you ever know anyone that needs to sell it, I can pay you $500 cash. And I can't tell you how many times that's just made me ridiculous amounts of money um, by telling them what I do. And that's awesome. Sharing yourself. That's the relationship, man. I love it. How much does that cost to share yourself? Pretty free. Pretty free. Okay, good. Uh, Brian, 39, at a Tracy, California. How do you structure a principal-only payment deal where the sellers likely will pass away before maturity? <laughs> that is savage. That is sad. Savage, yes. Um, I actually have a deal like this. Um, that will pass on. That debt will pass on to the person whoever inherits the property. So don't worry about it. You can't predict that anyway, unless you got plans for them or something. Good. Good question. Is it Andrew, 43, out of Chicago? Is the turnkey route a viable option for building a portfolio for a less experienced investor who is still in the rat race? Yes. I would say very much less. 
here's the ideal client for a turnkey property. It's someone that either they have the money, they want to invest, they want to put their money to work, but either they don't know how or they don't necessarily want to do the heavy lifting or they don't have the time. So those are the three. That, that makes an ideal turnkey client. Um, and yes, so there you go, right? Anybody add anything to that? I got it, right? That's who would do turnkey is they want someone to do it for them because they don't want to, they don't have the time, or don't know how. Uh, great. Jason Johnson, 42, out of Fullerton, California. If you are investing virtually out of state, where is the best place to find private money in the market you are investing in or the market where you live? Ah, so do you find the money in where you live or in the market that you're investing in? I, I would answer that as it's wherever you have the relationship. It doesn't really matter uh, where that person lives, I would say it, it, it really comes with the relationship that you have. And if they live in, in your city, then then it's your city. If they live in the market where the property is, then it's where the market where the property is. The money's the same in both places. Absolutely. But not necessarily. Because oh, go ahead, Josh. Well, the money's... Grab the microphone. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, like if I have like something like that, all the people I know with money are out here in California. And if people in Orlando, there's, there's money in Orlando too, but if you have a smaller market where there's not much money, I mean, if you're, I don't want to just like ruin anyone's town or anything like that, but there's a small, <laughs> go ahead, step if you're on. a small, poor town, and, but you're like in California investing, obviously you're not going to try to dig these buyers up in a small, poor town. You're going to go with your friends in California who have the money. I mean, so sometimes that answers itself. Yeah, I think along the same lines, is like let's say you're investing, I think, Matt, you invest in uh, a little bit in Alabama, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's a great cash flow state. Um, you know, you can get properties, you can get a $30,000 property that will rent for, what, like eight fifty a month? That'd be Some? a good one. Yeah, yeah. Closer to $750,000, 800 uh, And then if you can get out-of-state investors, such as Matt, or even better, out-of-country investors, um, that are more or less just trying to park their money versus somebody maybe in your state that's just looking to get a you know nice 25% return. Uh, you know I know wholesalers that just have huge buyers lists and most of their buyers that are paying the highest amount are out of the country and uh, out of state buyers. So if you can get those resources and meet those people and get that money from other places, then yeah, you're, you're going to get you know a higher amount. Awesome. Anybody have out of country investors? Hmm? I wish I did. Canada. <laughs> 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 Do we? Yeah. <laughs> Omar, you have an out-of-country investor. Sure. How did you find them? Bigger pockets. Bigger pockets. Well, there you go. Just where they all congregate, right? Super. Uh, Rob, 46, out of Bedford, Texas. If you are just starting out and have a full-time job, family, etc., what is the most time-efficient, time-effective? Big ticket item you can do to accelerate growth. Go, go for it. I'm glad you know. So if my wife is watching this. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Back in uh, 2001, I signed up for uh, Peter, Peter Conti and David Pickles' course on lease options. And these guys had a little, uh, they reminded me of your, your checkpoint system, mm -hmm. uh, where the, you had to fill out, you had to make 20 phone calls every single night. And so what my, someone mentioned about working with your spouse, um, my wife, I used to have her translate the numbers from the newspaper, but we used to keep them for two, uh, two weeks. Mm -hmm. And so they were eight, what they called H. This is before Craigslist was really big. And uh, she used to put them on an Excel spreadsheet for me, and I was committed to uh, call every night for one hour, 
and make 20 phone calls. Like, that was my one activity. And it was like magic. Like calls 1 through 19, nothing would happen. Just nothing. Right? And then 20, I'd always get an appointment. And so for me, I was 21 or 22. I'd done one deal. I kind of got lucky on that first one. I sent my kind of letters and did a $40,000 deal. But I had a dry spell where I was just on the phone. And I remember just going through that activity. Uh, one night, I got a phone call. I, I got a hold of somebody with a $1.25 million house. And I signed up a lease option um, on that deal. And I wanted to make them like $78,000 just from a cold call from a newspaper ad. But it wasn't necessarily the luck. It was the routine of being on the phone every single day, Monday through Friday, for 90 days straight. And so that eventually built that momentum. And so if you're just starting out, there's one activity I would say. Just make sure you're on the phone every day. Um, one other thing about that is that it's going to take sacrifice. So, you know, my wife, we were newlyweds, and she was sitting on the couch, and she was, like, frustrated sometimes. She was like, hey, someone come sit and watch the show. And, uh, you know, by the end, man, she knew that script. Like, every single day, it's funny. She still, like, makes fun of me this day and, you know, say the script. But um, once she saw that I was really, really serious about that, kind of having this, that supportive spouse, um, at first she wasn't okay with it, but... Once she saw I was committed and dedicated to do it, she was really, really on board. And then when I cashed that 78K check um, and we went to Hawaii, she was really into it. Right. <laughs> so, that's good. So we know she's looking for you to get on the freeway pretty soon. She, she wants you on the freeway pretty soon. Thank you for sharing in with yeah. us tonight. But uh, you can see what all that, that hard work reward results in. That's awesome. Um, let's see. Uh, is that Mona or Mora? Um, 44 out of San Gabriel. Do you only follow up on leads that respond to marketing efforts or have VA contact, all contacts identified on the list source and or any other list sites? I think that's a, probably a simple question. I don't know how to say. <laughs> Everybody, right? Um, yeah, Parker. Yeah, everybody for sure is a short answer. Um, I'll explain just briefly what I had my VA do is using, like Matt talked about earlier, call rail, uh, call capture system. Make sure you're grabbing all of those phone numbers. And call rail actually enables you to have a little note beside each number that calls you back. And what I'll have her do when she starts her morning is literally go through, even if there's 200 uh, calls that happen in the last, say, 30 days, then she'll go through and look at every single note in call rail, and it's either going to say, Noted in Podia, which means she got enough information to send them an offer, whether they you know, needed to sell their house or whether she was able to convince them uh, for us to let them know how much we could pay for their house if the time came that they wanted to sell. That's, that's another way to get a good offer out there. Um, but she just goes through each one. It either says noted in Podio, um, <clears throat> does not want to be called back like seller yelled at me, blah, 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 um, or follow up with. So to answer the question, She's leaving, if she gets a voicemail, she's calling them back. If she gets a voicemail the next day, she's calling them back. So she'll call them back every single day until they pick up and say, quit calling me or, yeah, send me an offer. Um, so that's what we do and, you know, no lead left behind. If you do that, you will not have any leads fall through the cracks. Cool. That's your results. Fantastic. Uh, this comes from Brian, 50, out of Corona, California. What percentage are you offering on houses in Southern California? That's our two Southern California people. Mr. Coco, Coco Palazian. Uh Simple math, it's 80% of ARV minus repairs. So whatever number you got, 500,000, 80% of 500,000 is 400,000 minus your repairs, 80 or 100,000, that's your offer price. 
In some places, you can creep up to 82 or 83 percent, but then you're banking on the market taking off a little bit, or you're in a really great neighborhood and you're assuming some sales are going to prop you up in the next six months or so. Right. But yeah, but 80 percent minus your pips. Awesome. Thank you, Coco. In San Diego, is it any different than that? Hi. What's your quick and dirty math? Um, the, the, the answer is uh, don't give a number. So, you know, if we have a formula, what we noticed in our office, and I'll just tr try to keep this short, is that, you know, our minimum was 80% minus repairs minus a minimum of 20K. Well, what we noticed was that everybody was doing $20,000 deals. And so, and our process is you've got to ask in five different ways um, what the seller wants for the property, what they'll take before even giving a number. And so what we do is if they won't give a number, we'll go that 80% minus repairs, minus, and this is only after we do the, the five questions, minus at least 100K profit. Um, that's kind of our soft pass um, be, to kind of create a, a law, law of contrast there so that if we go 100, then maybe they'll come back and we can do a $50,000 deal. But I, I agree with Coco that that's the number where people are buying at is that 80% minus repairs. Perfect. Great. Danny, 33 out of Los Angeles. What percentage of leverage are you comfortable with in your buy and hold business? Fair market value to mortgage amount. Danny, if it's good debt, take as much as you can. Um, I'm a huge proponent of the principal-only strategy. I remember hearing that from Matt three, four years ago now. Um, that's huge. That's huge. I mean, it's allowed me to create a nice portfolio um, at the age of 25. So, good debt. I mean, take as much good debt as you possibly can, and then as you start realizing that monthly cash flow, or you're starting to cash some bigger checks, pay off the debt that makes the most sense. You know, pay off your highest interest rates first, and your uh, your balloon payments. I can speak on that, and hope you might be able to correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but the, the banks look kind of at a 1.2% debt service coverage ratio, kind of, the, kind of their valuation. I don't have a lot of experience with the banks. But when I go evaluate, I'm looking at like 1.5% of debt service coverage ratio. So I just want to make sure whatever cash flow I'm getting, I can cover 1.5% of whatever the debt is. If I'm maxed out on the leverage, that, that's fine with me. I, I take, it's just like, kind of like Corey, I take as much leverage as I possibly can get. So I, I subscribe to a rule of thumb that while you're building your cash flow, while you're building your wealth, you want to use as much debt as you possibly can. You want to use as much leverage as you possibly can. Once you hit your cash flow goal, then you want to start working way back and eliminating the debt. There's a lot of people that disagree with me and, and think that's risky, but that's what I subscribe to. It works for me. As long as I've got 1.5% debt service coverage ratio, I feel safe and comfortable. And I think that was the question, what, what are you comfortable with? So that's what I'm comfortable with. Everyone else got a different, but that's my philosophy. Okay. Uh, Dave, 55 out of Highland. Uh, how do you start getting paid when wholesales? Dave, you want to help me out here? <laughs> Dave? Dave, where you at? I'm having a hard time reading a couple words here. Dave, you here? Dipped out. No, dipped out? Okay. Uh, we'll come back if we can. B, uh, never ask a lady her age, she says. Very good. Twin City, uh, contract for deed versus seller carryback. What's the difference and when to use each strategy? I'll answer that really quick. Contract for deed, I like to use when I'm selling property. I like to use notes when I'm buying. So I like to be on title. So when you're using a, 
uh, a note with the seller carry back, I still end up on title and I'm buying that way. When I'm selling contract for deed, I'm still on title until that contract is fulfilled. And in most states, when you're still on contract, you're doing contract for deed, it makes the, uh, if there's a default that happens, it makes the foreclosure process typically a lot quicker and easier. And the big difference there is that a note is a real estate transaction. A contract for deed is looked at as a business transaction. Okay? So that's uh, my quick answer. There's always exceptions, but that's the rule of thumb. Let's see, uh, Dave, 47, out of Granite Bay. Can you cover the best ways to finance long-term hold properties when you exceed that 10 mortgage limit? Seller finance, man. I mean, they're not gonna ask for your firstborn child or a blood sample like most of these banks. It's easy. Um, you can close a deal in a kitchen in an hour and a half. Um, I've gone the traditional route and I've gotten maxed out before, so seller finance, get good at closing people in their kitchen. All righty. Did you answer that? Because I was looking, reading, I was reading the Facebook Live perfect. That's a fantastic answer. Shout out to uh, Jason and Jeff on the Facebook Live. Um, let's see. Uh, Raul, 23, Miami. Are there any new mail pieces that stand out from the competition that you have been using? What is that? Uh, well, I've heard a lot of people here are also using it too. It's uh, basically the good old third notice. You know, we want to buy your house, don't worry, no one will answer. But they're taking out the, we want to buy your house for cash. So it's just like, a, it's an urgent thing. You call us about this house right away. So you know, you hit that person, like, oh, this might be something different. This might not be another postcard trying to buy my house. This might be, some guy's about to sue me, or there might be a problem. So it creates a little bit more urgency, but um, you know, you might, might get some people who are a little bit offended, or you know, at the same time, it's a phone to ring, it's those numbers, like I was saying, get some numbers in your system, so. <clears throat> Uh, definitely, if you're looking for an entertaining uh, seller phone conversation, you'll definitely get us sending out that mailing. <laughs> it's pretty fun. I've had some people threaten to like call the uh, FBI. He's like, I'm gonna call the CIA, the FBI. You guys are out fooling people, trying to steal everybody's houses. It's like my VA had a great time with that. <laughs> got it. You know, I got a really good tip from somebody. He was saying, uh, what he's trying to do is when he goes out to his own mailbox, he just kind of looks, shuffles through his mail, and whatever catches his attention in his own mailbox, that's where he gets his inspiration for what his next mailing piece or mailing piece is gonna be. So that was, I thought that was a good tip. Um, let's see, uh, Patty, 51 Highland. How do you analyze a new market? A checklist of what you specifically need to be there doing deals. How would you analyze a new market? I'll answer that really quickly because we're in a lot of markets. Um, we look at all the normal things that everybody looks at. We look at uh, uh, job growth, we look at migration, we look at what the economy is doing, we look to see if the government, the local government is involved. Um, we definitely want to see a diversity in industry and, and, and diversity in uh, the, the, the job base. But really, we just don't go into a market unless it satisfies one specific criteria. Do we have a team there? Do we have relationships there? If we're not going to be there, then I don't care if it's the best cash flowing market in the whole world or if it's the highest appreciating market in the whole world. If I don't have a team there to, to go ahead and facilitate those transactions for me and give me some good on the ground information, I'm not going there. Okay? But I think the best market without with a bad team is going to be a bad market for you. And I think a lot of mediocre markets with great teams can be exceptional markets for you. Anybody got anything to add to that? I really think the relationship is everything. If it's not in your own backyard and you're looking at another market that you're not in, relationships are everything. 
And what, what uh, Parker was saying, it starts with property management. That's the really ground zero for the good relationships. Uh, Ryan, 36, out of NorCal. What are, whoop, heard it. what are some ways in which real estate is poised to go through a similar transition like the music industry and the digital download? <laughs> Who is that for? Okay, got it. Um, you know what? This is the one thing about real estate. It, it's a people business. And I don't think at any point in our existence is it going to change. Every piece of real estate you buy or sell is going to be from or to another person. Um, I wish there was a push button thing. I know so many technology companies, even in the real estate agent space, there's so many technology companies that come and try to infiltrate that and make the listing process and the sales process really quick and easy. But at the end of the day, most people have to go out and look at the house. They go have to go out and talk to a person. So I don't think in our existence that's really going to change. But I have no idea what technology holds. I mean, if you'd have told me something like Shazam was possible, I would have told you you're absolutely crazy. That's pretty amazing. You hold the thing up to the speaker and it tells you what the song it is. I don't know where to start to invent that. But anyway, that's my input. Does anybody else have any input on where technology might take us out of the real estate game? Do you have any insight on that? Technology's not my strong suit, but just human nature. What's everyone's biggest decision for 95% of the population that's not actively buying real estate? Microphone. Buy the home. Microphone. Oh. <laughs> Start over. <laughs> I guess I'm starting over. So, um, yeah, just human nature. I think technology would be hard-pressed to beat human nature because for 95% of the population, buying your home is the biggest decision you're going to make. I think getting the whole population to buy in and trust technology, it could totally happen, but like Matt said, in our lifetime, not, not likely. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I think you said this before, it's like if we ever get ourselves into a situation where uh, we don't need houses anymore, we got bigger fish to fry. <laughs> Very good. Yes. Armageddon or something like that. Yeah. Wendy, 32, out of Nashville. What are some tips or lessons you have learned when working with your spouse or significant other? I guess I can answer that one too. <laughs> um, some tips or lessons. Uh, it really helps when your strengths and weaknesses complement each other. So if you can find something that uh, your spouse really excels at that you don't excel at so much and vice versa, and just kind of stay out of each other's way. We have a little bit of an overlapping gray area where we communicate and we talk all the time, but we really are on opposite sides of our office doing totally different things. Um, Coco, what would you say? Well, last night you told me, um, <laughs> basically, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. So, <laughs> she's right there. Yeah. And she's a broker, so we're, we're in the business together for 10 years, and we've been side by side for 10 years doing this. So. We've gone through a lot of it, and um, there's so much minutia on a day-to-day -day basis. It's difficult to have a conversation about every single thing, like it, put a lemon in, put a water in. Instead of that, we summarize things at the end of the day, but we provide the solutions rather than the problems. Oh my God, this happened, and everything just exploded. Instead of that, you know, I'll I'll sidebar that until I have the solution, and then I'll bring the problem and the solution together, so I look like a winner, you know? So, right, it's that type of dialogue back and forth, because if you can get inundated if you're working with your spouse. What happens is you, 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 know, you take it from nine to five, and you take it into the kids' room, and then you take it at, you know, onto the couch while you're watching TV, and it's all it is, it's real estate all day long. So just don't do that, and have a date night. Date night? Yeah, have a date night. I love it. Uh, Eric, 29 out of Nashville. 
Uh, Matt, in scaling your business so fast and grown so much so quickly, what are a few things you wish you could have done differently or had done sooner? I wish I wouldn't have thought so small for so long. I wish I'd have thought bigger, quicker. Um, you know, a $50,000 house and a $500,000 house is really it's the exact same process. And, you know, obviously the profit on the higher price point is much better. And if you're going to get paid more for the same work, I probably would have pursued bigger properties faster. That's the one thing I would have done differently. Uh, let's see. Wesley, 34 out of uh, Vancouver, I think. Uh, where or how do you see your mailing list? Uh, Wesley, did I answer, ask that correctly? Uh, yeah. If, if you want to come up here and, and phrase this for us. It's got cotton parentheses, so. Where or how do you get your mailing list? Get your mailing list, got it. Sorry. Where or how do you get your mailing list, Todd? Microphone? So I pull, uh, my primary list is from ListSource. Uh, I've tried them all. Um, I've actually sent some down to the county and uh, pulled the tax default. So for me, my, my best performing tax default list actually is down from the counties that they're in. But um, I use ListSource, something pulled from the counties that we work in. I also use Rebo Gateway. All three of them work. They all pull about the same. Right. And most of those list sources, they all come from they all pull from the county and the tax records anyway, so they're all pulling from the same information. So yeah. Uh, Philip, 38, out of Loomis. How many buyers do you send your deals to at a time? How do you manage their response? Is too many overwhelming? Um, a question is used, is accused of using the cash flow savvy system. Got it, so when you have a deal and you want to expose it to your buyer list, do you send it to them one at a time or do you send them all at the same time? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Parker? I just blast into all of them. <clears throat> I don't see, I mean, the whole goal is to get a buyer as fast as possible, right? Well, I would just you know, drag that out any longer than it needs to be. I mean, I guess if you had like 10,000 uh, buyers, or maybe that's a little drastic, maybe uh, like 3,000 buyers, um, if that's the case, I would still blast it out all at once. I would just hire a few more people to take those calls, right? There's no sense in dragging it out. That's just my okay. opinion. Uh, how would you manage their response? Do you take the best offer initially? Do you have create some sort of auction environment to get the highest price? I mean, yeah, you always want to try and get as much as you can. Uh, you don't want to make any buyers mad and, and burn bridges in doing so. Um, so explain, Matt, explain you, how you do uh, your price wars. I know we've talked about that. Mm -hmm. explain, explain how you do your price wars uh, without offending buyers. I know we talked about that a couple months ago. Right. So I will go ahead and say um, I'm not going to make people play games. But I'm not going to play games with my buyers. I want to preserve those relationships. I want them to continue to be buyers. So I'd be very fair and honest. Um, I do try to create a little bit of urgency. And typically it would be something along the lines of, hey, I've got some offers coming in. It doesn't look like anything is going to be exactly what I'm looking for, but I am going to make a decision within the next 24 hours. So if you submit your highest and best right now, you probably got a really good shot at, at getting this property. So I let them know I got, they got some competition. I let them know I'm going to make an answer within the next 24 hours or so. And I don't think I'm going to get exactly what I'm looking for, but if you submit your highest and best right around what I'm asking, then you probably have a good chance. So I want to create that possibility to leave that open for them as well. 
because I don't want to say, hey, I got a bunch of offers coming in, like, ah, no, forget, I might not even try, might as well not even go for it. And I also want to let them know I'm going to make a decision in 24 hours. I'm not going to extend this and prolong this out and play games with you as well. That's my approach to doing it. It's actually, uh, we now we don't have to do the second session of tomorrow's training, so that's done. Okay, uh, Tony, 42, Roscoe, Illinois. As a new investor, should you limit yourself to buying single-family homes at first, or also look at multifamily? What would you say, Corey? I'd say everything, man. Uh, my first piece of real estate I owned was a duplex. I got in, I messed stuff up bad, but I learned a ton and still made a lot of money on it. Um, people always say, I always hear that question so often, what should I focus on, two units, three units? To me, my, my philosophy, it does not matter. You can buy them all at a discount, you can wholesale them all. Single family, the only difference is single family homes tend to move much quicker in a market. Even if you're in a cash flow market, there's more de demand for single family homes because everyone doesn't want to be an investor. But you can always rent it out if you're buying it right. So I'd say buy them all. Awesome, awesome. Let's move on through. Great, 50, Cedar Rapids. Uh, in a recent podcast, you talked about, is this your podcast name you um, you talked about wishing you had gone for bigger deals earlier in your career. Would you do that by marketing to above medium priced properties? Ah, got it. Good question. Um, no, probably not. Um, or maybe so. <laughs> I'm trying to think. The only reason I'm saying that is because all of the big deals I've got actually came out of marketing for the smaller homes. So I, I, when you do marketing, you never. You know, you can go for, I'm going for absentee owners that has tax liens. Say that's your criteria. Even if you're that specific and you got your certain area and you're looking for three bed, two bath, you never know what you're going to get. Because when you start marketing a, a, a demographic like that, they are investors. They have lots of other properties. There's lots of other things. There's so many times I've bought properties of, from an investor that it wasn't the property that I was actually sent the mail to. And so you just never know what you're going to get. And... Um, when it comes to buying bigger deals, now I look at all those opportunities. The thing I probably would have done differently is not pass on so many because I was scared in the beginning of taking on that bigger deal, didn't think I could handle it. So the marketing, I don't know if it would change that much. Um, but uh, I probably just said yes more often earlier, if that makes sense. Thanks, Greg. Uh, Whale, 39 out of Wayne. Uh, how, do you, how do you, one, significantly prepare for the changing real estate investing market. That was all day. We talked about that all day today, right? Um, I would say just, if you're investing for cash flow, if that's your primary focus, you shouldn't be too concerned about the changing market, is really what I got. What I have to think. Um, I think what Coco hit it right on the head, if you're gonna do fix and flips, you wanna go for the little shorter term deals, just in case you get caught in the middle and the market shifts in the middle, that would be the other thing. Um, wholesaling, you really don't have anything at risk. I guess, uh, you know, if, if the market shifts, it doesn't matter if the market's up or down, there's always a relative low price to buy at and a relative high price to sell at. And if you're wholesaling, you typically you're just under contract and you're signing contracts or doing double escrows, so you never really have any money at risk anyway. So there's always fast deals. So if uh, you focus on buy and hold, that's, you know, it's the boring way to go about it, but it's, it's actually the safest way to go about it and it's going to shelter you from the, the shifting market. Mackenzie. And I, and I have something to add to that. Please. So um, before I found Matt and Epic Pro, 
Um, I had failed miserably at real estate investing, and I'd actually lost two properties. And that was one of the first things that I talked to Matt about, because I said, I'm terrified of real estate investing. I don't want to do this again. I just, I had to sell two of my properties off on short sell, and I felt like a horrible failure. And one thing that I had to promise myself and my family, my husband, um, as far as getting back into real estate again, was learning how to do it differently. And learning the strategies in Epic Pro is a different way of doing it because I have lots more tools in my toolbox to be able to manage a up market, a down market, a sideways market. So it doesn't matter, I'm making money in any market. Awesome, super. Yeah, it's, it's, the game is, is real estate. As long as you're playing by the right set of rules for that game and for that time, you know, you, you can make money in any market. I got one more quick thing on that. Sure. You, you actually said a few weeks ago on one of your podcasts, but something I've really noticed, you might not be able to buy as low, and you might not be able to get the sellers under contract for as low a price and pitch the doom and the gloom to them, but you're going to be able to sell those properties for more than you were able to in years past. So don't worry about you know, trying to get the lowest possible offer, humanly imaginable, anything. Just have good stuff on your buy side, have a good salesman who's going to go be able to sell that property for 10, 15 grand more than they would have been a few months ago. Awesome. Great. 21 out of Monroe. Uh, how many names should I mail in terms of direct mail to do two wholesale deals a month? Parker. Again, the, the famous it depends answer, um, but <clears throat> I can just speak for my market, at, not Charleston, but uh, Atlanta, Georgia. I think two deals a month for me was right around 5,000 postcards. Um, does that sound about right for you, Todd? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it depends on how aggressively you are willing to work with homes. But I think in the Midwest market, uh, we were in the Midwest for a while, and I think that's a really, really good shot. If you're in California, you're probably looking at about 10,000 postcards for a deal, but I, mean, I can't emphasize enough that if you're willing to work that database, right, you're going to pull deals out of that years later. Years later, so that number's going to shoot through the roof. But uh, I think those are, that's a really good baseline. Calm down. Yeah. Awesome. Michael, 49 out of Boston. Matt, what are your core values? Oh, wow. <laughs> All right. Well, integrity has been the theme of the day. So that's something I, I, I strive to stay within. It's not as easy as it sounds. Um, core values. I guess the golden rule. Treat other people as you want to be treated. Honesty. Honesty. Thank you. Melissa thinks I'm an honest person. Does your team have core values? Yeah, so we just revamped them. So a part of that is a commitment, courage, accountability, and gratitude. And so we, we looked at the people who we wanted to hire and what they represented, and so uh, and, and, and kind of who we wanted to be, because in some of those areas we fell short. And we're like, man, what if we just represented all four of these all the time? What could we do? And so those are our four right now. Um, and we'll, re we'll reevaluate those every year. Awesome. Good question. Thanks, Mike. Mike's got another one. What is your best advice for someone who works 40 to 50 hours per week? I think it would be a good question for Mackenzie. If she does work 40 to 50 hours a week somewhere else. But, yeah, often. Mm -hmm. um, and I also travel a lot too, um, and I am running the real estate while I'm traveling too. Um, so you, it, it is a commitment, and it's a little bit of a sacrifice until you can start scaling back that 40 or 50 hours. But 
find time, whether it's on the weekends or in the evening or if you're traveling um, in the Uber, calling people back, you know, it's, it is you are living and breathing and you're obsessed about this. Um, it, it's something that you just have to absolutely have a full-blown commitment to. And once you do and you start making the deals, you're going to see the fruits of your labor. So nothing's easy. Making money isn't, isn't like, um, easy. It takes commitment. Absolutely. I wasn't working 40 to 50 hours a week when I started, but I was, it was about, you know, 20 to 30. And I think the main thing is just tracking the small things, uh, like Matt's daily success worksheet. It's so easy to come home and want to plop down the couch or, uh, you know, the wife wants to spend time with you or if you have kids, it's a whole other ball game that I don't understand yet. But, uh, I mean, you just got to track the little things and don't get sidetracked. Um, like, uh, like you said, just have the commitment. Um, but I think the daily success sheet really works well for a lot of people because uh, it's just so easy to lose track, think you're doing stuff when you're really not, right? I think we all have a lot more time than we actually think that we do have. And if you take that, those small little nuggets of time and you're focused on those money-generating activities, a lot can be accomplished in a very small amount of time as long as you're focused on those activities. If you catch yourself doing anything other than you, what you can give yourself a point for on that daily success sheet, and stop doing it and get back on them and start generating your points, for sure. Uh, Chris, how do you deal with sellers, I like this one, I was gonna answer this though. How do you deal with sellers that consult with their friend, the lawyer, who tells them your subject to rap deal is illegal? Uh. <laughs> oh, this is funny. Yeah. I know you've got a lot of these for <laughs> Not only do I love subject to, but um, I just ask him, is the, so is the attorney, is he gonna be closing and buying your property? And that usually shakes them up enough to where you can come back in and you know be a sales master like Todd over here and uh, handle their objections. But I love saying you know anytime they have a, any objection about a third party coming into the deal, I, I say it in a nice way, but I say, Mr. Seller is so and so buying your property. Did you already decide that? What the answer? Like that, 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 no. Um. Got it. Uh, another one from Chris. How do you locate the right real estate lawyer to help you with your contracts, closing, etc.? We don't live in a lawyer state, so I can't answer that. Right? Referrals. Referrals. Perfect. <laughs> Drop the mic. There you go. Uh, super. So we've gone all the way around. We've got all of our questions answered. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you all for being here. Um, you have a wonderful evening. Get some good rest. We've got a big day planned for tomorrow, and I can't wait to share it with you. Everybody out there on Facebook, thanks to our panel. You guys were awesome. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. To your success. Live in the dream. You've been listening to Epic Real Estate Investing, the world's foremost authority on separating the facts from the BS in real estate investing education. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to visit iTunes and share your thoughts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time here at Epic Real Estate Investing with Matt Terrio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.